0: so, there has been an increase or a rise in the number of cancer cases that we hear about in our society and in our world. And oftentimes when a person comes to a place where they're diagnosed with cancer, questions are asked about things that they were exposed to or things that they did in their past that might point to the reason why they developed uh, whatever type of cancer that it was that they had. And if that source can be identified, oftentimes uh, it's something that seemed very harmless and very innocent at the time. And that seemingly harmless, innocent substance or atmosphere or whatever it was, causes in future days harsh and aggressive treatment in order to then try to treat or eliminate the cancer that that caused. Now, the nation of Israel, who we are studying and look at their history, is at a point now where they have an extremely advanced cancer within them. It's only been 115 years since the apex or the pinnacle of their existence in the days of King Solomon, the son of David. Only it was in the days of King Solomon that the nation was exposed to something that caused the cancer that we find within our study tonight. It was King Solomon and he thought it would be a harmless venture or something that would not really matter all that much to build high places and altars to Ashtaroth, to Chemosh, and to the false gods of the nations that were round about them because of the influence of his wives that they had within his life. Well, that sowed the seeds of idolatry within the nation, and it began the process of God having to judge because of the sickness that would ensue. And it was only a generation later that Jeroboam, the first king of the divided Israel, the northern kingdom, instituted calf worship towards the people of God. There was a shrine that was erected in Bethel and another one way up in the north in Dan where the people were actually worshiping calves. And it it, it became the root really of that idolatrous system that it seemed like Israel could never quite root out and undo. Further down the line, we come to Ahab who married a woman Jezebel who was from the Syrian region and that just hyper drove the idolatry in Israel. It brought them to a place where they were doing things that could never be named or never thought to be named amongst the people of God. And it came to a point where God said, now I've got to intervene because this cancer has metastasized not just from the northern kingdom, but now it's also infiltrated the southern kingdom of Judah. And it's at a place where if God doesn't intervene, then the only choice will be death to the nation. And so God, at this point, raises up a king in the north by the name of Jehu. And he is God's chemo treatment to the nation in order to forestall the judgment that otherwise would come very quickly. And so we saw in our study last time that Jehu, this newly anointed king, began to root out the evil that was in Israel. He first of all took out Ahab's son, Jehoram, who was kind of the descendant of uh, Ahab and Jezebel and, and who was really driving wickedness in the land. And then he took out Ahaziah, the king of Judah, who had become associated with him in the whole thing. And then he took out Jezebel, the woman who really uh, um, motivated Ahab to be as wicked as he was. And that's kind of where we pick up as we come to chapter 10 tonight. Jehu is in this route, really, of the wickedness that's in Israel. And it's a very uh, gory time, as really any cancer treatment would be um, and is, as he goes through and he really takes out all of the wickedness that's going on within uh, the land. And so we pick up tonight in uh, chapter 10. As, as uh, Jehu continues to wipe out now the descendants of Ahab and then the kindred, the family members of Ahaziah, the, the southern king, and then also uh, the worshipers of Baal uh, that were there in Israel at that time. And so it says in verse one, it says "And Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria. Now Samaria again is the capital of the northern kingdom. That's where the castle was and the throne was of the kings of Israel. Jerusalem is the capital of the southern kingdom that's in the south, where the descendants of David are ruling. And so he now uh, is we were in Samaria, which is the northern kingdom, in the capital. And it says that Jehu wrote letters, and he sent them to Samaria unto the rulers of Jezreel. Now, Jezreel was a suburb of Samaria. It was, uh, it was only a couple of miles away from it. It was a separate city, but the rulers of Jezreel had their offices in Samaria, much like we would do that now, as, as Poughkeepsie is kind of the county seat. And so representatives from different towns and provinces of Poughkeepsie have their offices in Poughkeepsie, same idea. And so he sends these letters to Samaria, but they're addressed to the rulers of Jezreel. It says, to the elders and to them that brought up Ahab's children. And the letter said, verse 2, now as soon as this letter comes to you, seeing your master's sons are with you, and there are with you chariots and horses and a fenced city and armor, look even out the best and the most fitting of your master's sons and set him on his father's throne and fight for your master's house. Now that Jehoram, the king of Israel, was dead, he now looks to the rulers of Samaria and says, now you guys replace him from the sons of Ahab. Find the best that you can, equip him in the best way that you can, fortify your city, and then get ready to do battle because I'm coming for you. But they were exceedingly afraid, and they said, behold, two kings stood not before him, how then shall we stand? If Ahab, or I'm sorry, the son of Ahab, Jehoram, and Ahaziah, his unified partner from Judah, if they weren't able to stand as a united front, then how are we going to be able to stand before this guy? He's going to defeat us. And so it says in verse 5, that he that was over the house, that would be the palace administrator, And he that was over the city, that would be the governor of Samaria, and the elders also, that would be the legislature or the house of lords, if you would. And the bringers up of the children, that would be the deputies that were assigned to grooming these sons of Ahab for places of leadership within the government. So the four groups of them, the palace administrator, the governor, the council or the legislature, and also the deputies that are grooming these people, all of them put their heads together and decide how they're going to respond to this letter from Jehu. And he says, or it says that they sent to Jehu saying, we are thy servants and will do all that you will bid us. We will not make any king do whatever is good in your eyes. So they basically concede and say, we don't want to fight against you. We don't feel like we can defeat you. And so therefore, what do you want to do? So he, that's a, uh, Jehu, wrote a letter the second time to them saying, if you be mine and if you will hearken unto my voice, then take the heads of the men of your master's sons and come to me to Jezreel by tomorrow this time. Now what he's asking for, again, I did forewarn you, I said it's a little bit gory tonight, is the heads of the sons of Ahab. It says, now the king's sons, being 70 persons, were with the great men of the city which brought them up. And it came to pass, when the letter came to them, that they took the king's sons and they slew 70 persons and put their heads in baskets and sent them to Jezreel. And there came a messenger and told him, that's Jehu, saying, They have brought the heads of the king's sons. And he said, Lay ye them in two piles at the entering in of the gate until the morning. And it came to pass in the morning that he went out and he stood and he said to all the people, You are righteous, or you are innocent. He's declaring upon them innocence due to the shed blood of these 70 sons of Ahab. And then he explains why. He says, behold, I conspired against my master. That would be their father, these 70 sons, Jehoram, the son of Ahab. And I slew him but who slew all of these? Now, his implication as he declares innocence upon them is on two bases. First of all, he's pointing out clearly saying, who is it that killed these, these people and who was it? It was the very people that were bringing them up. Now, I can only imagine what that scene must have been like. I mean, can you imagine 70, disorderly sons of the most wicked man Israel's ever known that knew nothing of a parental influence, but had the authority and the privileges of king's kids. And now these people are put with the task of trying to raise these people up and groom them for positions. Now, I believe probably every day of these kids' life, these bringer uppers had something that they wanted to do to these kids, and now they're told they have to do it. And they were very happy to do it. (laughs) and and so he says hey he points that out to them he says look if the caretakers of these people were ready-minded to do this then understand the type of people that we're dealing with number one but that's the lesser basis of authority for this or innocence the greater basis of authority is in verse 10 he says know now that there shall fall unto the earth nothing of the word of the lord Which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab. For the Lord has done that which he spoke by his servant Elijah. Now, God had spoken through Elijah, saying that because of the wickedness of Ahab and Jezebel, that God was going to cut off all of the descendants of Ahab, not only from the ministry, but from the earth. It was already foretold God said it would happen. And now, these years later, as the command of God is fulfilled and these are cut off, Jehu reminds them that this execution or elimination of these people was not done by the will of politics or by the will of men, but this is done according to the command of God. Now we'll come back to that uh, in a moment, that concept of God ordering the elimination of these people. It says, so Jehu slew all that remained of the house of Ahab in Jezreel and all his great men, and his family, and his priests, until he left him none remaining. And he arose and departed, and came to Samaria, so he leaves Jezreel now, and he walks the few miles to the capital city of Samaria, and as he was at the shearing house in the way, Jehu met with the brethren of Ahaziah, the king of Judah, the other wicked king that had by marriage become intertwined with Joram and the, the line of Ahab. He meets with those his, his brethren and he says, who are you? And they answered, we are the brethren of Ahaziah and we go down to salute the children of the king and the children of the queen. That would be of Jehoram, and uh, that, at that time the queen mother, that would be Jezebel. And so uh, basically they're like, hey, we're going to party with the descendants of Ahab. That's where we're on our way, way to go. And so he said, take them alive, and they took them alive and slew them at the pit of the shearing house, even 42 men, and neither he left any of them. And so now he wipes out the remaining of Ahaziah that was also um Uh, a part of the house of Ahab now by marriage. We talked about that last week. And when he was departed from there, he happened upon Jehonadab. We introduced a new character here. The son of Rechab, actually that would be Rechab, you know, if you wanted to pronounce it right, coming to meet him. And he saluted him and said to him, is thy heart right as my heart is with thy heart? And Jehonadab answered, it is. And Jehu said, if it be, then give me your hand. And he gave him his hand and he took him up into the chariot. And so now we have this man Jehonadab or Jonadab that kind of joins ranks or forces with Jehu. Um, Now it tells us that he's the son of Rechab here. Who this guy was or who the Rechabites were was that they were descendants of the Kenites which were the descendants of Moses' father-in-law, Jethro. They were not Jews by blood, but they became a part of Israel by assimilation, and they became scribes and servants uh, for the priests and for the temple. And these people kind of maintained their identity and wouldn't called themselves Jews necessarily, though they submitted themselves to the law of Moses and to the customs uh, of the land. Um, And if you want to read more about them, read Jeremiah chapter 35. And the whole chapter talks about these guys, the Jonadab, uh, the descendants of Jonadab um, that were there in Israel in those days. And so Jonadab um, kind of joins forces with Jehu here uh, in the thing. And so Jehu says in verse 16, he said, come with me, and see my zeal for the Lord. Now pay attention to that, because again, we're going to come back to it at the end of the chapter. But uh, zeal is, is basically defined as intensity that's fueled by a deep desire for something. And what he claims here is that he has a zeal or an intense heat or passion for the things of God. And he calls this man, Jonadab now, to come and witness it. Now that right there should set off a red flag in your mind. Because if someone has to advertise their zeal for the Lord, then there's probably something wrong with it. And we're going to see that most surely that there is. So this guy's on fire for the Lord by his own admission. It says, so they made him ride in his chariot. And when he came to Samaria, he slew all that remained unto Ahab in Samaria till he had destroyed him according to the saying of the Lord, which he spoke to Elijah. And Jehu gathered all the people together and said unto them, Ahab served Baal a little, but Jehu shall serve him much. Now he's being subtle here, not serious. Watch what happens. Now, therefore, call unto me all the prophets of Baal, all his servants and all his priests. Let none be lacking for I have a great sacrifice to do to Baal. Surely he does. Whosoever shall be lacking, he shall not live. But Jehu did it in subtlety to the intent that he might destroy the worshipers of Baal. Baal was the false god that, it, that was the primary false god in Samaria in those days. And Jehu said, proclaim a solemn assembly for Baal, and they proclaimed it. And Jehu sent through all Israel, and all the worshippers of Baal came, so that there was not a man left that came not. And they came into the house of Baal, and the house of Baal was full from one end to the other. So they packed it out. They really did it up, and they advertised it, and they brought them in, and the people are just shoulder to shoulder within this temple to this false god, Baal. And he said unto him that was over the vestry, the clothing, the garments, bring forth vestments for all the worshippers of Baal. And so he brought them forth vestments. And Jehu went... And Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, into the house of Baal, and said unto the worshipers of Baal, Search and look or make sure that there be here with you none of the servants of the Lord, but the worshipers of Baal only. Go through and, and just make sure that everyone here is purely pagan. That there's no curiosity here and that there's no Jews that worship Jehovah amongst these Baal worshippers. But just double check. And so when they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings, Jehu appointed 80 men outside and said, if any of the men whom I have brought into your hands escape, then he that lets him go, his life shall be for the life of him. So you're not to let anyone escape from this if they start to run. And it came to pass, as soon as he had made an end of offering the burnt offering, that Jehu said to the guard and to the captains, Go in and slay them. Let none come forth. And they smote them with the edge of the sword and the guard and the captains cast them out and went to the city of the house of Baal. And they brought forth the images or the idols out of the house of Baal and they burned them and they broke down the image of Baal and they broke down the house of Baal and they made it an outhouse unto this day so they desecrated it and made it literally a bathroom house which i've seen those bathroom houses and they are absolutely disgusting and very awkward because they didn't have stalls <laughs> thus jehu destroyed baal out of israel And so we see this man Jehu who is intent on completing the commission that he had been given by God. God anointed this man to be king and he gave him the specific call that he had. And that was to root out the cancer that had grown in Israel and metastasized into Judah. He was to eliminate all semblance of Ahab and his descendants and their influence from amongst the people of Israel. And it's a task that he took extremely seriously. Now there are some people that have a problem with this part of the Bible, not just this part, but this whole kind of aspect of God ordering the mass elimination of people. Now that is true that God does from time to time call for the mass elimination of people. But understand this as you wrestle with the question of that in your mind and whether or not that's right or if that should be or if that, you know, is of God or if that's of men. Understand this first of all. That only God has the authority to make that decision. Only someone that can see the beginning and the ending of all things and that can look right to the core and the heart of what's going on within those things and how it's going to affect what's around it presently and how it will affect future generations. Only one with perfect knowledge of all of that is able to make a, a, an order like that for that to be done. Understand also this is that the God who makes that order, which he does from time to time throughout the Old Testament, as we see all the way back in Genesis and even here now, understand that he always waits as long as he possibly can and urges repentance and a turning from the sin so that that is only a last resort. That it is not in God's heart that he takes any delight at all in the death of the wicked. He doesn't. He says, but that the wicked should turn from his wickedness and that he should live. And thus when God does it, he does it righteously because he sees the end from the beginning and he knows that there's no hope for this people and that they've become a a, a detriment to themselves and any influence that they'll have in the world is only going to bring the world to a a worse place and thus he orders it here that these people be um, removed completely. Now in the New Testament, that doesn't happen anymore. The New Testament edict that God has given concerning this type of thing is to let both grow together. You recall Jesus in Matthew chapter 13, the kingdom parables. And he spoke a parable and he said that a man went forth and he sowed good seed in his field. And at that night, while men slept, an enemy came and he sowed weeds or tares amongst the wheat. And when the crop began to grow, there was wickedness or weeds that were growing up amongst the wheat wheat or the healthy plants that were planted by God. And the harvesters came to him and said, hey, should we go through the harvest and root out the weeds of the wickedness from this thing? And the Lord of the harvest said, no, don't do that. Lest while you do it, you also accidentally take out something that is righteous or that is good. No, let both grow together until the time of the harvest. And then we'll gather the wheat into the barns and we'll burn the tares in fire later on Jesus gave the interpretation of that parable and he said the children of the kingdom are like the wheat and the children of the wicked one are like those tares or that wheat. And he says that the edict for the New Testament is let it grow together and leave vengeance in the hand of God and he'll work it out in the end. That's how God deals with it in the days that we live in. And that's important that we understand that. And here's why. Because a couple of days ago, it might even be a week or two ago by now, There was an instance where a a man went psycho and he started cutting the head off of someone in his household. And as he was covered in, you know, whatever and walking down the street, the testimony of those that were onlookers said that he was quoting Bible verses while he went. Now that's an isolated case, but it's something that we may see more and more in our world. And you've got to understand something, that in New Testament times, God will never order something like what we see here because he won't go back on what he already said. In the New Testament time, he says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And so God orders it, Jehu does it, it's for the good of Israel as we'll see moving forward. Now watch this in verse 29, this amazes me. He does so much good, this man Jehu, and now watch this. How be it, from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, he's the one that built the golden calves. Jehu departed not from them, to wit, the golden calves that were in Bethel and that were in Dan. Now this blows my mind. He goes so far in wiping out all of these people in obedience to God in order to bring blessing and revival back to the land. And he's only got to go one tiny step further that doesn't even involve the shedding of blood and he doesn't do it. He allows these two golden calves to continue. Now, why would he let these two golden calves continue, even though? Here's the reason. It's really threefold. Number one is because of power. See, he's been anointed to be the king over Israel. But if he breaks down these two calves, then what's going to happen is that people will now go down to Jerusalem to worship and not to Bethel or Dan, which are territories in Israel, and he'll lose spiritual control over the people. He's in danger, if he does this, of having Israel go from two back to one, and thus his kingdom becomes irrelevant, and he's not willing to let that happen. And so because he desires the power of the throne and of the crown, he allows these things to continue. Number two is politics. The people loved having that convenience of just being able to go somewhere close to home and offer their sacrifices and fulfill their duties. And it was just fine for them that there was calf that represented God. They knew in their minds that, hey, these aren't really God. But it's someplace for us to go and we don't have to carry the burden of going all the way to Jerusalem in order to worship. And so there was politics involved. It was people pleasing. And then number three, it was just plain old convenience for him. He didn't wanna go down there either. And it was just easier for him to do it. And so what we see here is we begin to see more of the flaws in the zeal, uh, the so-called zeal of this man, Jehu. Now understand again what zeal is. Zeal is intensity that's fueled by a deep desire for something. And as we look at it in the pages of scripture, there are two different types of zeal. There is genuine, authentic zeal for God, And then there is zeal that is selfish and that desires something for uh, itself or we'll call it blind ambition. Now zeal that is driven by blind ambition or where the intensity is fueled by a desire for something that benefits self, there's a personal thing there, then that's always the motive that's behind that zeal. It's what I'm gonna get out of the deal. Now what we begin to recognize is that what Jehu was calling zeal for God was actually a desire for power and a desire for the respect that Elijah had. He's mentioned three times in the text. He wants to be known by the people as someone who's just like Elijah, who had a zeal for God, a genuine zeal for God, and he wants to be respected that way, and he wants the power of the throne. And thus, his zeal is centered upon that motive or driven by it, and therefore he has to broadcast it. And zeal that is fueled for self is always something that will be visible to others. Someone who's zealous for themselves will always do things to be seen of men. Now, the other type of zeal is a zeal that is genuinely um, zeal for God, and it exists for God's pleasure. And someone who is truly zealous for God, is serious about the things of God, they have a hatred for personal sin, And they're jealous for God's glory. That's what someone who's zealous for God wants. That's their desire. That God alone would be glorified and lifted up. Now, when that's a person's desire and they're zealous for that desire, then that zeal never has to be physically manifested. Because God sees everything that's in secret. And so if service is being done for God, then it doesn't have to be done outwardly. That's why Jesus said, when you pray, go into your closet and shut the door. And pray in secret, and your father that sees in secret will reward you openly. That's why Jesus said, do not do your good deeds in order to be seen by men. For if you do it to be seen by men, then you have your reward. But rather, if you do them in secret, then you're doing it to glorify your father, and your father that sees in secret will reward you openly. Jesus said that if you're a faithful servant of the Lord, that when you're done doing your service, and someone comes to you and says, wow, you thank you for serving God in that way. Jesus said, if you're a true servant, then the attitude of your heart will be, why are you saying anything to me? I was only doing that which was my duty to do. Because true service for the Lord isn't done to be seen of men. And the motive behind it isn't to gain glory from men or attention from men or anything in the world from men. But it's in order to get glory that is for God alone. And the zeal is to please Now, the New Testament talks about a zeal without knowledge. It's in Romans. Paul says that there are some that have a zeal. He talks about the unbelieving Jews. He says they have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. And I find that there are a lot of Christians, and oftentimes it's new Christians, And it's just a part of it. I'm not criticizing it necessarily because I think it's kind of something that anyone who gets saved kind of goes through is that there's a, a season of that where there's a zeal that is without knowledge. It's without the knowledge of two things. Number one, it's without the knowledge of self. We don't truly know ourselves. Number two, more importantly, it's without or lacking in the knowledge of God, not really knowing who he is and what he's done. I think of the Apostle Paul in this vein because there was never a man who was more zealous than the Apostle Paul. He had, in his lifetime, in the scripture, two different forms of zeal. He had a zeal that was for himself, in the presence of men. And then later on, he had a zeal that was for God, and it was for God. That was the end of of his zeal. And in his zeal before men, he was seeking after a position, letters from the Sanhedrin, an exalted place in Judaica. Even as a new believer, we see in Acts chapter 9, he went into the synagogues in Damascus and he argued vehemently with zeal that Jesus was the Christ. And then he did the same thing in Jerusalem all the way to the point where there was such a stir in the churches that they had to come to Paul and say, Paul, go back home to Tarsus. And it says that when he left, then the churches had rest. He had a zeal, but he didn't know himself and he didn't truly know the Lord yet. But after spending time in the wilderness of Damascus and then spending time just working and living life and getting to know Jesus Christ intimately, his zeal that was for men and not according to knowledge began to fade. And his zeal that was truly for the Lord began to grow. And at the end of his life, he could testify to the Philippian church and he could say, of all the things that I was and that were to my credit and glory in the presence of men, I count them as rubbish that I might know him. In the fellowship of his suffering. And that I might be made conformable into his image. And his zeal and his ambition went from wanting to be something in the presence of men. To simply wanting to know Jesus more personally. And that is something that must happen in every one of our lives. Is that the zeal or the heat or the intensity of our life must change from that which profits and benefits us to that where we know who it is that we're serving and our lives are lived completely for him. And that's where true fruit begins to be born. But that wasn't the case with Jehu. There's no substitute for time and seasoning when it comes to having true and honest zeal for the Lord. It must be forged in the furnace of relationship with him. And it can come no other way. I confess to you tonight that I am less zealous as a Christian today than i was when i was a new believer but what i can say before you is that the zeal that i had as a new believer was from a mixed place of motivation and a lot of it was zeal that was without knowledge and the zeal that i have now though it be little and maybe less i hope that that zeal is more centered out of a desire to please him and to hear his voice say well done good and faithful servant May God give that kind of a heart to every one of us, that our zeal for God may not be for what we get from him, but what we can bring to him because of who he is for us. Well, it says that the Lord said to Jehu, and God is so gracious, that even though Jehu stumbles here at this point, God is good to him. It says that the Lord said unto Jehu, because you have done well in executing that which is right in my eyes, And have done unto the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart. Your children of the fourth generation or until the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. But Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart. For he departed not from the sins of Jeroboam which made Israel to sin. Another characteristic of someone who has the wrong kind of zeal is that they are very hard on others and very soft on self. Here's a guy who's willing to execute and slay those who are worshiping falsely, but yet he's willing to excuse it in his own heart when it comes to his own power, the politics and the convenience of his own life. That's a good way to recognize in your own life what kind of zeal you have. Are you harder on other people's sins than you are on your own? True zeal sees the wickedness that's within and deals with that first. Jesus said it with the plank and the speck, remember? If you see a speck in your brother's eye, hey, first get the beam out of your own eye. Then you'll be able to see clearly to go get the speck out of your brother's eye. Jeroboam didn't do that. He knew nothing of it. It also tells us this, is that repentance must go to the root. Do you understand that? See, the root of Israel's cancer was the sins of Jeroboam, the calves that were set up in Bethel and then up in Dan. That was the root of their sin. Well, Jehu goes and he eliminates all of the fruit or the outcropping of that sin, but he doesn't go to the root, and thus the sin grew back just as bad as it was, and it grew back in half the time because the root wasn't rooted out. The same is true in our lives. Listen, God calls us to repentance, but not just to repentance of the fruit of our evil works, But he calls us to, by the Spirit of God, mortify the deeds of the flesh. To say, God, by the blood of Jesus and the cross of Christ, crucify that sin in me and let it not even be among me at all. Not even the small things that are excusable, Lord, get it out of my life. Well, in those days, it says that the Lord began to cut Israel short. That is, that piece by piece, increment by increment, the borders of Israel began to shrink. And Hazael, remember him from our study last week, the new king of Syria, who Elisha uh, told would would spoil Israel, that Hazael smote them in all the coasts of Israel, from Jordan eastward, all the land of Gilead, the Gadites and the Reubenites and the Manassanites, from Arior, which is by the river Arnon, even Gilead and Bashan. Now the rest of the acts of Jehu and all that he did and all his might Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Jehu slept with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria. And Jehoahaz, his son, reigned in his stead, or in his place. And the time that Jehu reigned over Israel in Samaria was 28 years. Now in chapter 11, we move back to the southern kingdom of Judah. So we get in a bus. And we travel from Samaria and now we go down to Jerusalem and we deal with uh, the kingdom there. And when Athaliah, remember her from our study last week? She was the sister of Ahab and the daughter of Omri. That was Ahab's father, one of the wicked kings of Israel. And she at some point got involved physically, relationally with the son of Um. Ahab, which was uh, Jehoram, and, or I'm sorry, uh, this is where the things get confused, the king of Judah, the good, the good side, you know, the southern kingdom, got involved with him, who was the, the son of Jehoshaphat, it was Jehoram, but it was the son of Jehoshaphat, got involved with him, and, uh, and, and they produced um, some offspring, that was Ahaziah, the king. So Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, the king of Judah, who is now killed by Jehu, saw that her son was dead, she arose and she destroyed all the seed royal or the royal seed. So she goes through and she just begins to slaughter all of the living descendants of David. Now you recall the promise that God made to David. He said in Second Samuel chapter 7 that I will build you a house and there will never cease to sit upon the throne of Israel one from your descendants and that the Messiah ultimately would come through him. Well, Athaliah now sees that her son is dead. And so she goes through and she wants to centralize power to herself and she wants to rule. And so she goes on this genocidal binge and she begins to slay all of the seed of David. And she thinks she succeeds. It says, but, verse 2, Jehoshaba, the daughter of King Joram, the sister of Ahaziah, took Joash the son of Ahaziah, and stole him from among the king's sons, which were slain, and they hid him, even him and his nurse, in the bedchamber, or the mattress chamber, the the linen closet, from Athaliah, so that he was not slain. So this woman Jehoshabah, who is the sister to Ahaziah, who's now dead, goes and steals one of the sons. This man by the name of uh, Joash, who had a completely different mother, not Athaliah, and she hides him there, and he's at this point not even a year old. So she just hides this little baby and pulls him away from Athaliah as she's going on this, um, this this murderous streak. And it says that he was with her, hid in the house of the Lord for six years, and Athaliah then did reign over the land. So the only time that there was a queen that ruled in Israel, and it was this woman Athaliah or uh, Athaliah uh, who who ruled uh, over them. Now, this is interesting because at this point, the royal line of David comes within one soul of extinction at this time. And it's also interesting to me, and it's significant, that what we have here is a visible thread and a line that runs throughout the entire Bible. And that is the desire of Satan to try to sabotage God's plan of redemption. In Genesis chapter 3, When God was pronouncing the curse upon the earth, God said to Satan, he said that there will be enmity between you and the woman all the days of your life. And he says, her seed will crush your head, but you will bruise his heel. And the prophecy, though it sounds obscure to us, it was crystal clear to Satan is that God was gonna bring a savior or a Messiah into the world that would be a descendant of Eve. And that it would be from the seed of the woman. And so Satan from that time knew that God had a plan to undo the curse of sin in the world. And from that time, God or Satan tried to sabotage that plan. Satan influenced Cain to kill Abel because Abel was accepted before God. And so Satan thought, if I can get Abel off the picture, then God's plan will be thwarted. And thus he moved Cain to kill Abel. But God raised up Seth and the plan went forward. Once it was determined that Jacob would be the line through whom God would bring Messiah, God motivated Esau with a rage to try to kill Jacob, but God protected Jacob from the wrath of Esau. A little bit later on in their history, when the male children were getting to a point where they were threatening to overpower the Egyptians, the Pharaoh, again inspired by Satan, made it a law that all of the male children should be wiped out so that the children of Israel would remain in in servitude and slavery. Again, a desire to wipe out the plan of God. We see it here with Athaliah wiping out all of the royal seed. We see it a little bit later on with Haman in the book of Esther, when he made it a decree that on a certain day, all of the Jewish men would be killed. And we see it with King Herod around the time of the birth of Christ when the Magi came and they gave the announcement concerning his birth and Herod being jealous that a king would be born made it a law that all of the males ages two and under, Satan constantly trying to frustrate God's promise and God's plan. I also find it interesting here this, is that for six years it appeared to everyone in Israel as though the promise of God had failed. Because no one knew that Josiah was alive. He was hidden in the temple for the first six years of his life. And everyone thought that he or they were all gone and that God's promise had failed. And I like that, that that's here in the Bible. Because I personally have been places in my life where I've felt like the promise of God has failed. That God has made a promise but for some reason it doesn't apply or he wasn't able to keep it or things happened that were beyond normal circumstances and for some reason now this promise is going to fail. But do you know what? The promises of God never fail. And not one word of God will ever fail in any one of our lives. And no matter what the promises that God has made to you or that he's given from scripture, God is going to be faithful to complete that promise even if it seems for an extended period of time that the window of opportunity is long closed and that that can't happen for you. God is gonna keep his promise as he does with uh, the preserving of Joash. Well, in the seventh year, Jehoiada, he was one of the chief of the priests, if not the high priest, sent and he fetched the rulers over hundreds with the captains and the guard and he brought them into the house of the Lord and he made a covenant with them And he took an oath of them in the house of the Lord. And the oath, of course, would be that they would uh, not blow Joash's cover that he was alive. And it says that he showed them the king's son. Can you imagine the unveiling at that point? He says, I've got something I want to show you. By the way, Chronicles tells us that this is Jehoshaphat's wife, the woman who, who, who kidnapped Joash and kept him from Athaliah's wrath. Jehoiada is her husband, and he raises him in the temple for these six years, hidden from him there. And it says, now he shows them to him and he commanded them saying, this is the thing that you shall do. A third part of you that enter in on the Sabbath shall even be keepers of the watch of the king's house. And a third part shall be at the gate of Shur and a third part at the gate behind the guard. So shall you keep watch over the house that it be not broken down. And two parts of all you that go forth on the Sabbath, even they shall keep the watch of the house of the Lord around the king. And you shall surround the king round about every man with his weapons in hand. And he that comes within the ranges, let him be slain. And you be with the king as he goes out and as when he comes in. I love this. It's a priest with a battle plan. Don't you like that? <laughs> you know, this guy knows how to organize. And, and basically he knows the way these shifts work. And so he says there's a whole group of you that go off duty on the Sabbath. You're going to stick around and you're going to guard the king and, and, and guard the palace. And then there's a whole shift of you that you go on duty on the Sabbath. You're going to guard the gate and you're going to keep watch. And we're going to make sure that none of Athalia's tentacles can reach in and interrupt uh, you know, God's plan in raising up this man to be the king. And so the captains over the hundreds did according to all things that Jehoiada the priest commanded. And they took every man his men that were come in on the Sabbath and with them that should go out on the Sabbath. And they came to Jehoiada the priest. And to the captains over hundreds did the priest give King David's spears and shields that were in the temple of the Lord. And the guards stood every man with his weapons in his hand round about the king. Can you imagine you're seven years old? And you're like, what in the world is going on? This is awesome, you know. From the right corner of the temple to the left corner of the temple, along by the altar in the temple. And he brought forth the king's son. And he put the crown upon him and gave him the testimony or a copy of the law. And they made him king and they anointed him and they clapped their hands and said, God save the king. And when Athaliah heard the noise of the guard and of the people, She came to the people into the temple of the Lord. And when she looked, now can you imagine the look on her face? I'm picturing the wicked witch of the West coming in here in this thing and she's going, what? You know, as she sees this young man with the crown on his head thinking that she'd eliminated them all. She looked and behold, the king stood by a pillar as his manner was, and the princes and the trumpeters were by the king. Ding, dong, the witch is dead. Witch, old witch. The witch. You know, she hears all this, this noise. And the people of the land rejoiced and they blew with trumpets. And Athalia renter, tore her clothes and she cried, treason, treason. Now, who's the treacherous one? She had absolutely no right to claim for the throne at all. And she's the one that went and killed all the descendants of David. And yet she's the first to cry treason. But Jehoiada, the priest, commanded the captains of the hundreds, the officers of the host, and said unto them, Have her forth without the ranges, and him that follows her, kill her with the sword. For the priest had said, Let her not be slain in the house of the Lord. And they laid hands on her, and she went by the way, by the which the horses came into the king's house, and there she was slain. And so the last Root of the cancer, at least as it affected the southern kingdom of Judah, is now put out as Athaliah's lights are extinguished. So the chemo is done and the cancer's removed. Now comes the revival of the Spirit of God. Watch this, verse 17. And Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord and the king and the people that they should be the Lord's people between the king also and the people. Now, I like this guy Jehoiada because he is single-handedly responsible for the revival of the spirit that happens amongst God's people at this time. And the first thing he does that is the first ingredient in this revival is that he brings in consecration. And he does it in two different ways. First of all, he makes two covenants. Number one is between the Lord on one side and the king and the people on the other side. He sets the king amongst the people first and they all stand before the Lord together. The king is not above the people at this point. He is among the people and he makes the covenant or the consecration that these are the people that belong to the Lord, both the king and the people. That before the Lord, they are all on equal ground separated unto him. Then he makes a second covenant of consecration between the king and the people. That is, now the king is elevated and that he is being anointed and appointed by God to rule over the people in the fear of the Lord or in the name of the Lord. It's always the first step in seeing a revival of the Holy Spirit in the lives of God's people when God's people are consecrated back again to God. That means separated from everything else. They relinquish ownership and rights to their own lives and they give themselves completely to God. My life, Lord, is completely yours. I exist completely for you and let me not exist for anything else other than you. Whether it be king or person, whether it be pastor or parishioner, no matter who it is, we stand equally before one God and our hearts are consecrated before him. Consecration. The second part is separation. Verse 18. And all the people of the land went into the house of Baal. This is a separate house now in Judah. And they broke it down. His altars and his images broke they in pieces thoroughly. And they slew Matan, the priest of Baal, before the altar. So they desecrate now the house and the altar of Baal. And they desecrate their idols and their images. Always the second great key in seeing any authentic work of God happen. In a place and that is separation from our sins so consecration unto God followed by separation from evil and from the world and that is absolutely necessary I believe that there are many people in the United States of America today that would profess consecration to God and yet they wonder why in a place of professing consecration they're not experiencing the revived work of God's spirit within their lives I believe oftentimes the reason is because though there's been consecration to God, there hasn't really been separation from sin. When there's an actual and authentic work of God in people's lives, there is no place for sin within the lives of those people. And if there was a true work of God that were to sweep through our country right now, what you would see is that you'd see the houses of false worship closed down. You would see bars and taverns closed down. You would see laws legalizing certain things that are an abomination before the Lord reversed or supplanted, put under and put away. Because whenever there's a genuine work of God, it's always accompanied with repentance from sin. We see that here. And then the third part of it, not just the consecration and the separation, but then coronation. It says, and the priest appointed officers over the house of the Lord. And he took the rulers over hundreds and the captains and the guard and all the people of the land. And they brought down the king from the house of the Lord and came by the way of the gate of the guard to the king's house. And he sat on the throne of the kings. I love the way the NIV says this verse. If you have an NIV, it says this. It says, and the king took his place upon the throne. And that's always the third part that's going to bring a real work of God's revival in the lives of God's people is when the king takes his place upon the throne. I've shared this with you before that there are two entities within your heart and there are also two beings that live in there. If you're a child of God, if you've been born again, if you're born again here right now, there are two things in you. Number one is you, yourself, what was born after the manner of Adam. But if you're born again, then Jesus Christ also lives within your heart. And for each of those two entities that are alive within you, there are also two pieces of furniture. There is a cross and there is a throne. And it's kind of like a game of musical chairs, is that someone always occupies one or the other. Now, if you yourself are on the throne of your life and you're calling the shots and dictating, then by deduction, where does that place Christ? Still upon the cross. The Bible says that he is no longer upon that cross. That he's the resurrected ruling Lord. King of kings and Lord of lords. And the amazing thing is that he would be humble enough to live in our hearts and yet possess that place upon the cross within our lives as we sit upon the throne. But he's so patient that he waits. And the spirit is a gentleman and he doesn't force his way. And so he waits until in our self-rule, we bring ourselves to self-destruction and we say, God, I'm sorry. Take your place upon the throne within my life. But what that means is that you must do what Jesus said and take up your cross and follow him. And if Jesus is going to live upon the cross, the throne within your heart, then it means that you must take up your cross and die daily following and surrender to him. And true revival is always accompanied by people where the king has his place upon the throne. That we say, Lord, you be the king of my life and you call the shots. And let me follow what you have to say, that it no longer is I, but Christ who lives in me. Like Paul said in Galatians chapter 3, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I But Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the call that every one of us has. And when there's consecration to the Lord and separation from our sins and the coronation of the King within our lives, then we begin to experience revival. And here's the outcome, verse 20. And all the people of the land rejoiced. There will always be rejoicing when there's a revival of God's work. And the city was in peace. Peace is also the result of God's work within a life. And they slew Athaliah with the sword beside the king's house. The slaying of those things that stumble and pervert. And seven years old was Jehoash when he began to reign. The Musicians can come. What we need in this country right now is a revival of God's Holy Spirit. We don't need more worship services. We don't need more professions or songs. We don't need more Bible studies. What we need is to lay prostrate before the God of all the world and say, God, we've sinned and come short of your glory. And without you, Lord, we have nothing. Without you, we're left to nothing but judgment. And there's a great cancer that exists within our society and within our world, Lord. And you are the only one that can come in and do it. And Lord, would you by the power of your spirit come into our county and into our churches and into our families and into our house. And would you do a work that only you can do. And would you break us, Lord, of the hardness of our hearts and the things that we're gripping onto or clinging to. Or rip us off the throne of our life and put us on the cross that you might again have your place within our life. And it's then and only then that we're going to see things truly change within our country. May God give us the grace to be able to see ourselves clearly and to be able to see him clearly in his glory. And that it might start right here with us right now as we say, God, revive your work within your servants. May I be again consecrated unto you. Lord, may I be separated from those sins and those things that grip and constantly pull me away. Lord, would you take your place upon the throne of my heart and on my life. And then, Lord, do it in my family. And then, Lord, do it in my government locally. And then, Lord, do it in my church family. And, Lord, do it in my county. And, Lord, do it in our government and in our world and in our country. And, Lord, if you're willing to give time for the saving of souls, would you revive your work again? Father, we thank you tonight as we consider your care for your people Israel. That even in a time, Lord, when they had so digressed, the kingdom was split and divided and unified for evil. Lord, you were willing to raise up something that would root out the wickedness. We've heard many things tonight, Lord. And we pray in Jesus' name, Lord, that you would work in each one of our lives. That, Father, you would raise up a Jehu in us that would cut off the heads of that which is evil within us, Lord that you'd root out the sin and the wickedness and you'd bring us to a place, Lord, where your promise can be revived again and where your blessing can flow freely through our lives. Thank you, Lord, for testifying to us tonight. Your ways are so true and so good and we desire to give ourselves to you. So please, Lord, work in the lives of each one here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.